0: Hello! Welcome to Creepypasta. This is the show about creepypastas. I'm the host, Jeff. Uh, I re-listened to the brand new intro. I realized I don't say my name in it, so I should say my name at the beginning of the episodes like normal. Yeah. I'm Jeff Kowalski. I host the show. Uh, see, normally what we do on this show is I have two guests and they each talk about a creepypasta uh, and then I split that recording up into two episodes so that I don't have to record so often. But today it's a very special and different episode. Instead, it's going to be a one-on-one interview with Channel Zero showrunner and uh, prolific television writer Nick Antosca. Hello, I'm here. Did I say your name correctly? I forgot yeah. to ask before we started. You did. Some people okay. say
1: Antosca. some people say Antoska. Antosca. and Tosca is the correct pronunciation
0: that's excellent it's cool. uh, <laughs> so the uh, this this is a, a big gig for you getting getting channel zero here because uh, I I didn't see any other um, any other major credits like that on your IMDB is that this is your first time running a show this is my first time running a show
1: um, it's my first time uh, creating a show for television. And yeah, it's super exciting You know, I, I've worked on um, uh, A bunch of other shows But this is, this is like The one that I can get to the screen The way I want to do it
0: Yeah, that's excellent I, uh, Yeah, I see you seem to be a bit of a, a horror guy here You've got Teen Wolf and Hannibal And a Friday the 13th uh, re-reboot uh, All here on the, on the dossier Yeah, I love horror I mean, I grew up reading and writing horror
1: Um, particularly authors like Peter Straub, Thomas Ligotti, of course, Stephen King. Um, And uh, it's it's not exclusively what I do. But um, in terms of my TV writing career, it's just kind of happened that, uh, that the main stuff that I've had made is horror. And I'm very happy about that.
0: Excellent. That's, uh, it's, it's interesting because I don't know if immediately Teen Wolf and Hannibal sort of read as horror, but if you think about it for more than like a second, that's definitely, I mean, it's about a werewolf, uh, for Teen Wolf and a cannibal serial killer for Hannibal. So that's yeah, definitely uh, in the genre, but they're a little more stylized. They,
1: they, they definitely are stylized. They're different
0: kinds of horror, but they're both for sure. They're horror
1: shows. Um, Teen Wolf was, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a, you know, it's a YA show. Um, I always thought of it. I wrote on the second season and I had seen the first season and thought it was surprisingly, uh, surprisingly good and surprisingly scary. Um, I always thought of it as a uh a horror show that was pretending to be a, a teen romance. Um especially in the first couple of seasons. I I actually haven't really seen beyond the third season. But um, and then Hannibal is uh, you know it, it, it's a it's a horror show that at first pretended to be a procedural in order to get on the air like that is literally what it is. Uh,
0: yeah, I uh, I I've never seen Teen Wolf. I know we have a couple listeners who have, uh, but it must have tapped into some market because it's uh, what is it going into its seventh or sixth and final season now? Something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean at some point you know I may catch up and and watch them all but uh, yeah it's i i still get checks from it you know that so you can tell that that it did well um but uh but yeah i, I think um uh you know it, it struck a chord with people um and good horror and in, in whatever kind of avenue of the genre does
0: that it's interesting uh You seem to have a lot of specific work in adaptation because Teen Wolf, as, uh, most people will know, was a sort of B level pre back to the future, uh, Michael J. Fox movie from the early eighties. Hannibal, of course, is in the, in the style of like Casino Royale with the James Bond franchise or Batman begins. It's like a prequel that is also a reboot into the modern times of, a very popular franchise and then of course uh, this, I I, it's so far unproduced Friday the 13th script, Mm -hmm. uh, also an adaptation and of course Channel Zero Uh, is there um, do you think you have some specific skill set that lends your writing to adaptation? No, I think actually that speaks to the state of
1: the industry more than anything I've I've done a bunch of original things that have sold but not been made um, and it always seems like, you know, not just in my career, but across the industry in my experience, while like during the, the time that I've had a career, it just seems like adaptations are, are what gets made. Um, and for, for TV writers, uh, who want to do original stuff or, or have creative ideas and want to bring their own stuff to the table. Um, the challenge slash opportunity now is to find an adaptation that uh, you're excited about and then bring your own language and voice to it. Right. Like, um, uh, Hannibal and Teen Wolf were, were good training for that. Um and creepypasta is sort of the perfect version of that because you have these great stories that are really short and they're the the best ones are built around really strong, scary, uh exciting concepts that that suggest a larger, more sinister world or mythology. Um, so you have a great starting point, and then you have a lot of freedom to expand them because most creepypastas don't lend themselves... Don't, don't have enough story built in for even six episodes of TV. So you take... Um, you take the, the the concept at the core, and then, as a writer, you have a lot of room to to explore and try to preserve the spirit of the original and the atmosphere and and the sense of dread that comes from it. But you can um, create new characters uh, or build substantially on existing characters and create a a much more substantial narrative.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Candle Cove is, it takes maybe five minutes to read and, uh, Chris Straub, the author of the original story referred to it as a twist delivery mechanism. It was all for him. The entire thing is structured around the delivery of, uh, the twist of this TV show might not be real or might be magical in some way. And for Channel Zero, you kind of got all of the content of the story out of the way in the first episode and are sort of you sort of have the that as the background almost like now you have the freedom uh, after that to do to expand on that world and to explore some of the more interesting aspects of the twist and I, I read the synopsis for uh, season 2 which is adapting No End House and it seems to be a similar thing where it's gonna uh, we, we're gonna get through the No End House and explore the Ram of maybe this is a uh, haunted house attraction that never ends.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, Chris is Chris is being too modest when he describes the story that way. <laughs> uh, it is you know it, it's a great twist at the end but uh, he's created kind of a launching point um, for uh, you know a, a whole world and he's created this television show which is the the core of um, of, of our real world show uh, and more importantly he's he's created um, something that strikes a chord in readers and viewers which is this sense of oh yeah there's this thing I remember from my childhood it's seemed benign at the time, but, uh, but the more we dig into it, the more sinister it is and um uh, yeah i mean for both no end house and candle cove um out of necessity we we took a lot of license in terms of the uh, the characters and the story beyond the first episode so but but we wanted to in both cases take the concepts that um that we loved about the story and that i, I think most creepy Basta fans love about the stories and build them into particularly the pilot um so you know I, Obviously, Candle Cove is written in the form of message board posts. It's sort of unadaptable in a literal way, unless you were to just, you know, show, do an uh, um, unfriended type uh, thing where it's like all the computer screen, which nobody wants to see um, in this case. Uh, so, you know, we built the the message board conversation into a scene in the pilot, uh, which is the the, the group um, of our main characters kind of sitting around at dinner. Table and somebody says, "Hey, do you remember Candle Cove?" Um, and they start having the uh, the memories that that we see in Chris's original short story. You know, the screaming episode that somebody thinks was a dream and somebody else remembers as a real episode, um, which um, uh, we took almost verbatim from the story. And you will see the screaming episode later in the season, <laughs> uh, of course, and. Um, uh, and then of course the, the twist comes at the end of the pilot, as you, as you note, because I, I just feel like, um, both for, for fans who are already familiar with the story, it would be sort of ridiculous and uh, silly to, to drag out that reveal beyond the pilot. And for fans who haven't um, read the story or for, for viewers who haven't read the story, um, I think it's a great ending to, to, to the first episode that makes you want to see more. So um, so we just sort of
0: continue the story that that Chris started uh, in the next five episodes. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, there's obviously you've had to, uh, like you said, change some things to make it fit a little better. and. Uh, Ed- but there's other things that were, I found, surprisingly faithful, like that dinner party conversation and the fact that the main character's name is Mike Painter, which is taken right from the original story, yeah. um, but then he is presumably made a bit younger because his screen name is Mike Painter 65, which would put him uh, turning 51 this year, uh, and then the show they remember was 71 or 72 uh you guys have moved it up to 88 and made mike a bit younger uh so but not all the way so he's he's around like 11 or 12 uh when the show is originally airing in the, f- the flashback scenes. Uh, is there a specific impetus? Is that simply because uh, the target audience you're going for would have been kids in the late 80s rather than the early 70s? Um, that
1: wasn't the specific reason. It was more uh, about um, plausibility in terms of like, there were, there were a couple calculations that we went into it. One, we wanted the main characters to be about the age that they would have kids who would plausibly be watching the show if it showed up again right Um. so so we wanted them to all plausibly have kids you know between the ages of 5 and 11 Um, and it seemed like you know the oldest that we could make them uh, as a group was like late 30s early 40s um, and it also, uh, it also helps with casting. Uh, and of course, in the, in the, the crucial message board post at the end of Chris's story, um, there's, uh, you know, Mike Painter goes and talks to his mother who's in the nursing home. Um, and we wanted to take that seed of a relationship that's in the, in the short story and build that. Um, into the core relationship of the season, which is Mike and his mother. Mm. Um, and we didn't want Marla, the, the mother character, to be confined to a nursing home. You know, you wanted to keep her, um, young enough that she was still kind of active and could, could, you know, go about and investigate and, and participate in the story. Um, so for, for a number of reasons, it was necessary to change the dates and the ages a little bit.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I totally didn't even think of all that, but that, that makes total sense. Uh, sort of behind the scenes, I guess there's a lot of things that have to go on and sort of stuff that has to fit in that way that, uh, that the audience won't even know about.
1: Yeah, there's all sorts of, you know, little considerations that go into um, uh, changes in adaptation that you would never, uh, you never think about just watching the show. We tried to be uh, very faithful to what Chris wrote in the story for all the the stuff that's directly translated to screen, um, particularly in adapting the puppet show itself, which is is the thing in the short story that is very explicitly described. And the- Yeah,
0: that's what I was going to ask about next, because, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of very specific details, but in general, the structure of the puppet show is kind of vague, but you guys totally nailed it
1: yeah we we you know we took all the details that we could and and translated them. Um, there were a couple things like you know in the the story, um, the skin taker is described as having a top hat uh, we gave him a a sort of tri corner um, admiral type hat uh, because um, because the top had translated just didn't quite look right uh, mm-hmm. and in terms of um, uh, logistics it was it was hard to uh, to do it. As a, as a puppet and then to have somebody wearing it, it just didn't look right translated on screen. So, so we changed the hat a little bit. Um, and we also changed the, the name of the puppet from skin taker to jawbone because there was a lot of concern originally, both on my part and on the part of the, the network, um, that it would strain the bounds of plausibility. Um, that, you know, there, there would be a real children's show uh with a character called skin taker um so uh so so for the um show as it appeared to the kids the character's name is jawbone however the concept of the skin taker will appear in the show um in uh in episodes to come so we did not abandon that we just changed it (laughs) officially on the puppet show itself
0: yeah i saw sort of the the sizzle reel trailer uh I, I think it shows up at the end of the pilot. If you watch it on, on the website or probably on cable too, that, uh, there looked to be like hanging skin or like one of those, uh, possible dream sequences again, where there was a kid that didn't have skin. And I, I thought that was, uh, it was, it was interesting to sort of like, as someone who's read the story and loves the story to know, like, oh, jawbone, that's the skin taker. And then to see those flashes was sort of like exhilarating rating.
1: Yeah, cool. Yeah. And then I, I think you'll there will be some other things that you um that you enjoy uh in particularly in episodes uh five and six.
0: Cool. I um now there's a different production style that goes into making a puppet show than goes into making a live action show. Was that sort of like a B crew or did you guys do that? Uh, was there like a, another, a, another set of people that were brought in specifically to do the puppetry stuff? Yeah. Um, it, I mean, everything was, was actually shot
1: by the same people. I mean, th- those scenes and sequences are, everything is directed by Craig McNeil, uh, Um, who's our season director and, and each, you know, I've, I've said this in various, each season of channel zero is going to be, um, a showcase for a really cool independent director um, in the in the horror genre world, um, who you know is somebody that I just whose work that I love and that I want to work with. Um, and Craig is our our first season one, um, and so everything was directed by him and shot by uh, Noah Greenberg, our DP. Um, in terms of the production of the puppet show, we we brought in a, a group of professional puppeteers led by Rob Mills, who uh, who's a fantastic puppeteer out of Toronto. He worked with the Henson Company. Um, he worked on Fraggle Rock. Uh, I think he, um, I think he would play the character in Labyrinth, uh, which Labyrinth. Um, I have to go on IMDb and confirm that. But, uh, <laughs> Um, Rob and his team came in. They built the puppets. Um, they built both the, the, you know, the small puppets for the puppet show itself. They built the giant life size puppets, which appear briefly in, in Mike's hallucinations. Um, and they operated them. Everything was done old school. There's no, uh, you, you know, nothing that's not practical there other, except um you know painting out the puppeteers in the in the life size sections hmm. um and uh we shot it on VHS and Oh, yeah,
0: I was wondering how
1: you got it to look so authentic there. Yeah, I mean it's shot on on like just a, a crappy old eighties uh, VHS camera, um, and uh, yeah, there there was a lot of you would not believe the amount of technical conversations that go into shooting something on VHS and then translating it into the specs or whatever for for broadcast. Um, you know, the the network, the folks who handle the technical stuff are like. What are you talking about? Just, just shoot it regularly and, and then, you know, futz it in avid. And it's like, no, that's not gonna, it's not gonna look quite right. (laughs) So, um, but, uh, yeah, we had, we had two days at the end of the shoot where it was just puppets and, um, and Rob Mills and his guys doing crazy voices
0: yeah it's interesting you can you can sort of tell even though modern effects are so good uh, like I I could tell watching Channel Zero I'm like they did something that isn't just like a filter for that they did something different yeah uh, I just I just went to see that new Ouija movie and it has just like a film grain filter over it and you can tell absolutely it's like good and it's a cool effect but you could tell that it was it was shot digitally and then filtered later right
1: I, I, I'm actually probably Gonna go see that this afternoon if I have time. So um, uh, you've ruined the illusion for me. Uh,
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh it's uh I guess that's a that's a good transition. I don't think I have uh much else to ask about Channel Zero. What uh what kind of horror movies have you been into lately? Oh man, I've been so um deep in production for months that
1: I haven't seen anything new. Um I've watched I'll sit down and like watch a movie at like two in the morning a couple times a week. Uh, Honestly, the last thing that I watched was Psycho, uh, which doesn't really have any specific bearing on on Channel Zero Season 1. But... uh, God, what else? I you know I still haven't seen Don't Breathe, which has been playing in the theater, you know, in downtown Winnipeg for a bit, and um, is the thing that I'm dying to see. Yeah, um, I missed that one, unfortunately. I loved the trailer. Uh, I, I was I was really excited to see it. So, but I think I'm going to have to see it on um, on you know Netflix or whatever. I want to see Black Mirror, which which just came out. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, the, the movies that influenced Channel Zero, it's going to be different every season because the seasons are going to be so different. But, yeah. um, uh, for season one, it's, it's some stuff that you might not expect. Like, um, Martha Marcy May Marlene was actually, uh, a significant visual influence. Um,
0: uh, Michael Hanukkah movies. Um, the Shining, of course. I detect maybe a little Twin Peaks in there with the way the dream sequences are uh, structured. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so w- it's interesting. On our writing
1: staff, we've got um, we've got a couple like amazing horror guys. Um, uh, Don Mancini, who created Child's Play, uh, is oh, wow. one of our writers. And one of our other writers, Harley Payton, who wrote like, I don't know how, he, he wrote or co-wrote like 12 or 13 episodes of the original Twin Peaks. So like Twin Peaks meets Child's Play is, is sort of a perfect <laughs> combination of like guys to work on on Candle Cove. Uh, and uh, uh, there are, you know, influences from both of those kind of sensibilities that that go into the first season. Um, and uh, also. Also, uh, one thing that Craig and I talked about a lot was uh, was the vanishing the the uh, the late 80s one, which has this sense of um, of of like something on the edges of the screen and this kind of slow creeping dread which was really the atmosphere that we were going for um most of all in in the first season and i like i have super eclectic taste both in in terms of movies in general and in terms of horror movies but um i i find that the 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 thing that most consistently predicts whether i'll love a movie is whether it feels to me like a nightmare like it has a kind of um uh, like inexorability and and uh uh, just a consistent feeling of dread um and that was what i really want to capture in various seasons of channel zero you know we didn't think of this as a um you know a a typical like a a jump scare horror show we we uh we imagined that you know it's on sci-fi the budget is very low there won't be that many people watching this. We're just going to make something that we really want to see. And, um, uh, you know, the tooth child and all that stuff. It's just, it's just. Uh, pure nightmare stuff that we wanted to put on screen.
0: Yeah, there's uh, there's sort of a, a bit of dramatic irony with uh, the Tooth Child. Is uh, the characters don't see don't see it, uh, but the audience is aware from episode one that there's this monster made of teeth. <laughs> um, and then also, uh, as far as the the jump scares go, there was just the one at the very beginning uh, during the dream where it cuts to that uh, like flaming pile of hay down a hallway. <laughs> Uh, that was That was probably the most effective uh, moment of the episode for me because it was just so out of left field, and I was like i didn 't want to know what 's going on there, uh, so I guess the question I have is uh, how do you find that balance for what what to show and what to hold off on for for your mysteries well um, uh, first of all that that flaming pile of hay is um, is
1: a performance artist named Olivier de Sagazan who is is uh, you know. <laughs> this outsider artist who just does his own thing and and I had seen his YouTube videos on uh, when I was in the Hannibal Writers Room and always wanted to work with him and we just called him up and flew him in from France to do some stuff in uh, in Channel Zero. You'll see him a lot more in the finale um, and you'll get glimpses of him before then. Um, but uh, in terms of the balance of jump scares and, and um, for lack of a better phrase, slow creeping dread, um honestly, you really find it in in the editing. I mean, if our intention going into it was uh, atmospheric horror, not um, you know jump scares. And then in editing there were there were just a few moments that uh, that presented themselves and you kind of find the rhythm of of the show and uh, and and the moments where um, those jump scares are least expected. Like what we never wanted to do is is have you know the moment of somebody creeping down a long hallway and uh uh, it just goes on and then like boom the cat jumps out or whatever like it's just it's just not that show and it it never will be um but uh but the moments where you 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 don't expect a, a jolt because a million movies haven't trained you to expect it are where occasionally it can be uh quite valuable
0: yeah and it's interesting uh you mentioned the cat jumping out that's sort of the classic cheap fake out jump scare is uh it's it's interesting you didn't uh, you didn't go for that at all your your like one or two actual jumps were something that was Genuinely terrifying, just because it was so like bizarre and unknown. And I I always find that um more effective than than going for the fake jump out to release the tension, and then a uh, couple seconds later having the actual scare hit.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've I've worked on stuff where they do that, and um, as a writer, you know, you 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 watch it, and it's just like. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, nobody's gonna remember this tomorrow. You know, they might have jumped like briefly, but uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I want to like whether you jump or not. To me, good horror is, um, tends to make you, you know, six hours later or the next morning or, or a few days later, think like, oh, God, that was, that, that moment stuck with me, you know? And, and it's, it's not usually, sometimes it is, but it's not usually the moment where the thing jumped out to me. It's the moment where, it's the moment before that where the person was going down the hallway and you just had this sense of, oh, God, like, I, I can't stop watching. And and I'm so happy. Not me in that hallway.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I the probably the most unsettling moment. Uh, thinking back to horror things um is one one of the more unsettling things i've ever seen uh is that moment in sort of the mid-season finale of Hannibal season 3 uh i won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it uh but there is a person who is mutilating themselves in a very upsetting way on screen like barely concealed by shadow uh and uh you were working on the show at that time i believe right yeah i, well, I i'm i'm not sure actually which scene you're talking about you're talking about uh, Mason? Uh, the, is he, he's the face guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, cause that's a, that's a moment that I know from the, uh, the books was something that was in that character's backstory, but seeing it right there in front of you was very visceral and, and upsetting. And even the, uh, other characters in the scene are like, what is going on here? I
1: think you're actually talking about, um, a, the scene that comes late in season two. Two, where oh, is it season two? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the second to last episode in season two. And I had um, I, I wasn't I wasn't writing on season two. But when that aired, I had just been hired to write on season three. <laughs> And I remember, and I was, like, I was a huge fan of the show before I got hired onto it, so I I pushed really hard to, like, get the interview and get on, and and I'd just been hired in, like, that week, and um, uh, I sat down and watched that episode, which is, you know, one of my two or three favorite episodes of the show now, and, like, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm going to be writing for this show. This is so cool. That is, that, that scene in particular is... Like, in my opinion, one of the best horror scenes that's ever been on TV. It's just so nightmarish. There's like firecrackers going off in the background and the guy's hallucination. It's just and and Hannibal's head is turning into a hog's head. It's like so nightmarish. And I was just like, I can't believe they got this on TV. Like, I can't wait to to be in this writers room.
0: Yeah, my my uh the thing I I would ask myself every time I watched episodes of that show was like is anyone in the boardroom at NBC watching this show? Do they understand what they're agreeing to put on air here? It's like I haven't even seen like HBO shows go to some of the places that that show went and it was so good and I'm so glad that we got even the three seasons that we did. Uh, So, yeah, there
1: was, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, um, I never saw notes from a studio or network when I was doing that. (laughs) And and I like, I'm sure there were some, I don't know how Brian handled that exactly, but they never, ever, ever got to the writers.
0: (laughs) yeah i remember the one thing i heard about uh i think uh brian fuller mentioned in an interview was in season one there's the uh the the backskin flayed angels uh and the the network's note was that you can't have a bare butt crack uh so they had the butt cracks filled in with blood and the network was like yeah that's fine (laughs) right (laughs) so yeah there's uh it's it's sort of interesting uh but now you're on cable is there uh, you have uh, sort of more freedom there or is it is it sort of just as strict
1: you know I, I guess we have more freedom um, it, there haven't really been I've never had a content conversation with sci-fi about like oh you can't show this or whatever um, the only things that we you, you, we get standards and practices emails uh, and the only thing is um, you know we, we can say fuck but we have to uh, we have to drop out the CK in, in the yeah. world. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and the, like, w- w- once in a while, the uh, executives have come on set. And one of the only notes was like, w- we did a scene where in No End House, where, um, one of the actors was, uh, was improvising a little bit and like adding like, uh, a bunch of profanity in the dialogue. And the note was like, Okay, can we just do like 50% less of those? Cause we're just gonna have to bleep them all out. You know, it, <laughs> it's gonna sound like uh, there's a sound problem in the show. Um, but, uh, in terms of, um, in terms of content like violence or sex or anything, I, I've never really got a note on that. In part because Channel Zero is a very, at least in the first season, a very suggestive show. You know, there's, there's yeah. not, um, there's, it's just not gory. Um, there will, in, in coming episodes, you will see a few very brief moments of, uh, of graphic violence. But um, I would say nothing as uh, as extreme as even Hannibal. Uh, It's much more about disturbing imagery in terms of like the tooth child or, uh, you know, our skin taker that will show up or um, uh, brief moments of violence. So uh, I I think we could push the envelope much further. And I suspect in uh, in in No End House, we get a little bit more. More, um, visceral uh, but uh, but I think if we were to do future seasons just because the style of every season is going to be very different um, I think in future seasons we might have more uh, stuff that would merit content discussions with the network
0: You know, yeah, there, there's a lot of creepypastas out there that just get like super gory that's sort of one of the things because a lot of these stories are written by like young people who love who have a subscription to Fangoria magazine and that's sort of just like what they're into at the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say that the the very best creepy tend not to be all that gory. Um, they they tend to you know suggest something, um, and it's more about something strange appearing in a normal world. Um, uh, and both No End House and Candle Cove have that philosophy. Um, it, it will. Channel Zero will never be a gore show. It just won't be. Uh, but. Um, just in terms of shooting style, even like, like Candle Cove is very restrained. It's very sort of objective, you know, th- there's a lot of wide shots and when you see graphic violence, you'll often see it, uh, from a distance or in a, in a, uh, kind of very restrained medium shot. Um, no End House uh stylistically is much more uh, sort of close in with the characters there's there's more handheld stuff or um uh, steady cam and so if you know if something is chasing our characters is we're kind of close on both the characters and the thing. Um, and just by virtue of that shooting style, there's more kind of, uh, close up stuff when there's blood or whatever. Um, and you know, the, the, uh, like I, I'd like to do seasons that have the vibes of, of different genres of horror. And I could see doing a season that feels more like. A slasher movie or something without it being cheap and um and purely gore-based
0: it's interesting because uh, yeah i guess the the sort of main thrust of horror is i don't want to die in a horrible way but uh yeah, yeah it's more about the dread um uh yeah, I think that's that's uh, about our time. Um I had one more little question and then I'll 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 give you a chance to say anything else you wanted to say about Channel 0. Uh the town name is Iron Falls, correct? Uh, Iron Hill. Iron Hill. Uh see I conf- conflated it cuz uh the the, sh- the short story collection and sort of universe that the original oh, story yeah. is is Iker Falls. Yeah. Uh, was that a, a like intentional little nod or Well it's actually a nod to the the short story itself um
1: because in terms of uh the geography of like where Kendall Cove is and where these people are the only clue in Chris's story is um is a reference to Ironton which is oh. a kind of metropolitan area in uh around Ohio um and because of uh, various story points um, the, the show, the adaptation takes place in, in a fairly rural area. Um, so we, we, we wanted to put it in the vicinity of where Chris had, had set the story. Um, we also wanted to name it after the area where he had, uh, he had indicated that the, the story takes place. Um, and of course we had to change a lot of details, but, But yeah, Iron Hill is named that because Chris identified uh, Ironton in the story.
0: Ironton, okay. Uh, and that's, uh, that's gonna do it for, for the episode. Is there any, anything else you wanted to, uh, say specifically about Channel Zero or about the genre of horror in general?
1: No, uh, thank you for, uh, for having me on. I, um, you know, like I was saying, this show is really a passion project for, uh, for me and for, um, for Craig on the first season. Um, and, uh, I'm really gratified by, by the response. You know, we wanted to make something that was just the kind of horror that we enjoyed and that we didn't really see on, on other horror shows that are on TV right now. And I'm, I'm really happy that, um, uh, that new viewers enjoy it.
0: Um, and that uh, a lot of fans of uh, of Chris's story seem to, to like it. Cool, well thanks for being on the show uh, everyone out there listening, you can go watch, uh, I believe the first episode is free on sci-fi.com, that's S-Y-F-Y uh, they changed the spelling a few years ago, in case you don't know that, uh, but are further episodes available on there? Um, I, I, yes, I, I believe, uh, certainly I, I think in the U.S., the first
1: two episodes are up now and i think that all of the episodes are going to be available on on sci-fi.com for free um i don't know how long that will be the case but i'm pretty sure that while it airs you can go to sci-fi and watch it and if if uh if they go off, you can get them on iTunes um, and various other places where you can get episodes of TV. Yep.
0: Uh, you can, of course, follow me on Twitter, J3FK, Uh Nick, do you have a Twitter that you want to give the people? Yeah, it's just my name uh, or at my name. Nick yep. Cool. Uh, That's going to do it for this episode. I feel like I don't want to use it for the third time in a row, but the only sign-off phrase for doing an episode related to Kendall Cove at all is, of course, you have to go inside. (laughs)